Well, good evening, everyone. It's really nice to see you over Zoom. Hopefully this won't be for too much longer. We'll wait and see. And uh, do keep uh, Revelation chapter 3 open so you can follow along what I'm saying. But first, let's begin with a short prayer. Thank you for the riches of your word. Help us to hear what you're saying to us this evening. Help us to heed Jesus' warning. See our need for forgiveness and, the, and see the glory of the Lord Jesus afresh. Amen. Overconfidence can be deadly. The Titanic was famously the largest cruise ship ever built. It was over 250 meters long and it was at the time the largest man-made moving object inside boasted of wonderful luxury and it was thought unsinkable. As a consequence of their confidence, their designers only had enough lifeboats for a third of the passengers. But as we know, tragically the ice, iceberg hit the Titanic and it sank and many people lost their lives at sea that day. Overconfidence can be dangerous and deadly. I don't know if you can hear me better now. Overconfidence can lead to arrogance and carelessness and that can lead to disaster. Think of the X Factor contestant who thinks they have an angelic voice being ridiculed on live television due to their overconfidence. Uh, think of the overconfident student who skips revising but ends up failing the exam. Think of the overconfident rock climber who goes without a rope and loses their grip. It's easy to become overconfident, especially when we've been successful in the past, when we've had a good reputation. It's easy to become overconfident as individuals, especially young men, I think, we're prone to overconfidence. We can be overconfident as communities, especially here in London, it being the capital and it having a good, uh, successful track record. So overconfidence flourishes on past success and on past reputation. Not that confidence in itself is a bad thing. The issue is where we place our confidence. We need to place our confidence in something reliable and something solid. And so we're picking up our series in the letters in Revelation in chapters one to three. And uh, we're coming to this week uh, to Sardis. And Sardis was a city uh, with a historic reputation. Uh, it was the Lydian capital in the sixth century BC. And Sardis was renowned for its great uh, prosperity and its wealth. It's where silver and gold coins were first minted. And it was at the junction of major trade routes and it was built on the high point of, of the, the surrounding area. And so Sardis was thought to be a city that could never fall. It was thought to be an impregnable fortress. But though it was thought to be impregnable, in its history before this point, it had two historic falls. First in 536 BC, under the Persians by um, Emperor Cyrus, who you meet in uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. And later uh, in the second century BC by Alexander the Great. On both of these occasions, the city fell 
because of its own complacency. The, the soldiers came not in the front entrance, but at the back, the rocky cliff face, which was thought to be unscalable. When the first soldiers came up the cliffs, there were no guards on duty. Who would guard the city which could never be, uh, which could never fall? And so the trick of soldiers became a torrent, and in both times, the city fell to the invading army. Overconfidence can be deadly. And then and later on in AD 17, there was an earthquake, and then it was being rebuilt. And as great wealth was being poured into it by the Romans. And the city was in danger of living with its past reputation. And the church in Sardis was in danger of doing the same thing, living off its own reputation. Our passage begins in chapter three, or first with a description of Jesus, whom we've, uh, and we've seen these descriptions uh, in all the uh, passages we've seen over the last few weeks. Have a look at verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is the same description from chapter one, verse 16. And so this is Jesus, the son of man, speaking to his church. He holds the seven stars in his hands. These could be the angels of the churches, or more likely it could be the ministers of these churches. So he, he holds these messengers in his hand. And so he is the most informed person to know what's going on. And the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit, speaks of Jesus' all-seeingness. Later on in chapter 5, verse 6, uh, John writes about Jesus being on the throne. He says, I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing in the center of the, th of the throne. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and they go out into all the world. So these sevenfold spirits of God, they go into the, all the world and they report back to Jesus what's going on. Jesus has the unique vantage point of being able to see exactly everything which was going on. And he, so he has complete vision, seven being the number of completeness. So Jesus can see past the glossy facade of Sardis, and he sees their reputation for what it really is. He sees the reality underneath. So he sees what's desperately wrong in Sardis. And this passage is a warning to that church. And so here we see in our passage, Jesus being the great doctor. He diagnoses what, uh, what goes wrong and he gives a life-saving treatment. So firstly, let's see his diagnosis in verse one. Uh, let's read verse one again. To the, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus says, I know your deeds. And this speaks of Jesus' all-knowingness. He knows because he's all-seeing. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So perhaps Sardis had a glowing reputation inside and outside the church. Perhaps hundreds of people flocked to its services week by week. It was a bustling center of activity. 
This calendar was, fat, was uh, packed full of programs, uh, Bible studies, prayer meetings, and uh, mums and toddler groups. So everyone thought that this church in Sardis was doing really well. It was a hive of activity. And so everyone would think that Jesus would commend this church. But as we know, reputation doesn't always equal reality. So Jesus being the one who sees everything, he sees past the outward appearance and he sees what's going on underneath. He says they are dead. They've lost all sense of their spiritual life and spiritual death has taken over. He says he knows their deeds or lack thereof. If you look over to the church in Thyatira, which we looked at last week, Jesus commends that church for their faith, their love, their perseverance and service. But there's no mention of those things here. There's no mention of love, faith, service and perseverance. There's a sense that at one time, this church in Sardis had been going really well, but they've taken the pedal off the gas and they've been coasting along ever since. They've just been going through the motions. I suppose that's a danger for us, for us just to go, to the motion, go through the motions. They've started well, but they haven't finished what they've started. Jesus says in verse two, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So perhaps at one time the church was full of love for the Lord Jesus and for others. But perhaps over time, its love for Christ had grown cold. Its love for others had grown cold. Perhaps at one time they had been a faithful, trusting church, depending on God through hard times and persecution. But now they relied on their own, on their own reputation, on their self-sufficiency. Perhaps at one time they were marked by self-sacrifice, but now they did only things to be seen by, by men but nothing too costly. And perhaps they persevered through times of suffering, but now they were just coasting along and laying low. So they were evangelical. They believed all the right things by um, intellectually, but they didn't put them into practice. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead or they were about to die. But you may ask, how can a faithful, healthy church end up like Sardis? This description of Sardis is a terrifying thing. How can a church which looks alive on the outside be dead on the inside? So how can this happen? Well, I thought a helpful cross-reference would be 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we heard in our uh, first reading. Uh, do turn there uh, and have a look at those verses again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says in verse one, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. The last days is the gap between Jesus ascending into heaven and Jesus coming back. And so we're living in the last days now. So this is the age of the church now. In verse two, people will love themselves and there will be lovers of money. And then there's this list of all this ugly behavior. They'll be boastful, abusive and proud, and so on. And then verse three, not lovers of the good, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Then the same comes in verse five. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
on the outside they look godly, but on the inside they're dead, they're like Sardis. And that has happened because they've loved themselves rather than loving God. They put themselves on the throne rather than the Lord Jesus. And so it's um, worth examining our priorities. What comes first in our lives? Is it ourselves and our reputation? Or is it the Lord Jesus and his reputation? And if we put ourselves on the throne at the centre, it's a dangerous slippery slope. But back to our passage in uh, Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis. So we've seen Jesus's diagnosis. They look alive on the outside, but they're dead on the inside, or, or they're about to die. So that's the diagnosis. And Jesus being the great doctor, not only gives them the diagnosis, he gives them the life-saving treatment that they desperately need. So Jesus is the life giver in the gospels. He raised from death to life, uh, Jairus's daughter, the widow's son at Nain, and his dear friend Lazarus. He is able to bring the dead back to life. And those physical miracles point to what he can do spiritually for this church, for sinners like us. Jesus can bring the church back to life. And so we see his life-saving treatment in verses two to three. And we have five key imperatives. Wake up, two, strengthen what remains, three, remember what you've received and heard, four, keep it, and five, repent. Let's have a look at those imperatives. So firstly, wake up, wake up. One of the most dangerous things you can do when driving on a road, on a, on a motorway, is to fall asleep at a wheel. You can start drifting along as your eyelids um, uh, fall under tiredness. But if you do that, that can lead to disaster. So you need to wake up. That's what Jesus is saying. They need to wake up to the spiritual danger they are, they are in. And they need to take action now. If they keep rolling over and pressing the spiritual snooze button, there'll come a time when it'll be too late. They need to take action now. One of my favorite moments in the, in the parables that Jesus taught was the parable of the prodigal son. When the younger son was away in a foreign land, in a pigsty, there's a wonderful moment where it says, he came to his senses and he returned to his father. We need to wake up and return to our father, return to our senses. And then so Jesus says, strengthen what remains. So here is a picture of a withered plant that has been neglected for too long. It hasn't seen a watering can in days and it's been put under a blanket so it can't see the, the sun. And so Jesus says we need to strengthen what remains. He says to the church in Sardis, strengthen what remains. And what does that mean? It means cultivating desire to know God again, to return back to the Lord Jesus, to go back to the basics. It means going back to the Lord Jesus and seeing in him all, all the glories of heaven and all the riches of his grace. Going back to the cross and seeing him dying on the cross there for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Seeing the empty tomb and him defeating death. Seeing him raised up in heaven and pouring out his spirit on those who trust in him. So it means going back to the basics 
cultivating that desire to know God again. And that's not neglecting the ordinary means that God uses, reading our Bibles, uh, praying to him, and meeting with other Christians. As we do those things, those, those basics, that will strengthen what remains. And so thirdly, the church inside us is to remember what they've received and heard. And that is the gospel message, the word of the gospel. They are to remember the gospel which had become cyanide or diluted or simply forgotten. Because it's only through the gospel of God's immense grace in Christ that a church can be transformed. Otherwise, it just becomes an empty shell of outward religion. And biblical remembering always leads to action. It's uh, great to have uh, my sister Katie here with us. And she's very good at reminding me of her family birthdays. She'll text me in the week saying, don't forget, it's uh, mum's birthday on Saturday. Now, it would be very foolish of me to ig ignore what Katie said and not get my mum a card or a gift or something. Remembering is more than recalling to mind. It's, it leads to action and a changed life. So they are to remember the gospel, they are to make it central again, and they are to keep it. That means to guard it. So there are many things which can take the place, the central place of the gospel. Perhaps it's the style of music which is em emphasized, or perhaps it's ecstatic experiences which people um, are, ch are chasing. Or perhaps there's a pressure to dilute to what the, the gospel says on certain key issues, things like sin and judgment and our need for repentance, or perhaps things like sexuality and gender. It can be very tempting to downplay those things, which uh, goes against our culture. And so the church in Sardis, they are to remember the gospel and keep it and guard it and see the wonders of the Lord Jesus afresh again. The gospel is not only the way in the Christian life, it's the way on in the Christian life. It's the whole house, not just the door. And in our context in the Church of England, the gospel is under attack. And so it's up to us to contend for truth, to keep the gospel central. And finally, number five, the church inside us is to repent. Have a look again at verse three. Repent, Jesus says. And what does this mean? It's a change of mind, which leads to a changed life. It's a 180 degree change of direction. So in terms of our attitude towards Jesus, it goes from ignoring him and neglecting him to seeing him as the greatest treasure in this world, seeing him in all his glory and splendor. Repentance starts by seeing Jesus as who he is in all his supremacy. A key verse for this is Philippians 3 verse 8, where the Apostle Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. When we see Christ Jesus in all his surpassing greatness, that will lead to a changed life. But then it must follow on with action, life-changing action. So it's learning to love what Jesus loves and learning to hate what Jesus hates. Learning to love God and his ways and making every effort to put sin to death and pursue righteousness. 
And so that's the life-saving treatment that Jesus offers. We're to wake up to the spiritual danger that the church was in. They are to strengthen what remains, that's cultivating the desire to know God again. They are to remember the gospel and keep it central. And they are to repent, leading to a changed life. So that's the life-saving treatment. In the next couple of verses, we see what happens to those who refuse treatment and those who take the treatment. So have a look at the end of verse 3. Jesus says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Just as the city in Sardis fell in its own great complacency, so Jesus will come against those who continue in their own self-confidence. They need to wake up and turn back to Jesus. And that would be a terrible thing to happen for Jesus to come in judgment against them. And so that's a call for us to examine ourselves as well. Are there things that we need to repent of? Are there ways in which we become compromised with the culture? Are there sins we've allowed to fester in our hearts? Are there good deeds which we've left undone and become weary in doing? So that's what happens to Jesus's um, we've seen what happens to those who refuse the treatment. But what's the promise for those who take the treatment, who, who take Jesus' words seriously? We'll have a look at verses 4 to 6. And these verses speak of Jesus' immense grace to sinners like us and to a church like Sardis. We see three wonderful future promises. Perfect intimacy with Jesus in the new creation, white robes of sinless perfection, and a name of eternal significance. Let's read from verse 4 again. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, people who hear, who hear Jesus' word to repent. They will walk with me, Jesus says, in white, for they are worthy. This verse, they will walk with me, walk with me speaks of the extraordinary intimacy we will have with the Lord Jesus in the new creation. We will walk with him in all of life. We will know the warmth of his friendship, the infinite joy in his heart, and his abounding delight for his people. Right now we see but a faint glimmer of Jesus's majesty, but in the new creation we will see the Lord Jesus face to face, and we will walk with him for all eternity. We cannot fathom the immense joy we all have in him and in his people. That's the first promise, that they will walk with him. And the second is that they'll be clothed in white garments. And these white garments are later described in chapter seven as those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb. Now that's a very strange thing. How can robes washed in blood become white? How can blood make white? And that's, uh, that's a strange thing, but it's a wonderful promise. Just as blood cleanses our body from our impurities, so Jesus' blood can wash us white as snow. And so we won't be named worthy by our own merit by doing something we can boast in, but by solely trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us in his death. And we won't be just given white robes, we'll, our characters as well 
will be changed, will be made perfect like Jesus in every way. Instead of wanting to sin, our lives will be perfect, unblemished righteousness. What a promise that is for us now. And in this life now, uh, we are to strive to live in holiness and not soil our garments. We may never, will never reach perfection now, but by God's grace, we can make progress. And finally, we will have a name of eternal significance. Have a, have a look again at verse 5. Jesus says, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So if we're faithful to Christ in this life now, our names may never become famous. Our reputation may be slandered and mocked, but we can rejoice that our names are written in the book of life, in indelible ink, never to be erased, never to be blotted out. I want to close with the story of a, of a missionary. Uh, he went to China just after the Cambridge Seven in the late 19th century. And after, um, and the Cambridge Seven, uh, like this, this man, like the Cambridge Seven, came from a background of wealth and prosperity and privilege. But he gave all of that up to serve Christ and witness to drug addicts in rural China. I've only heard this story in passing, and history has long forgotten his name. But you can be sure that his name is famous in heaven, as Jesus confesses his name to his Father in heaven. Now, I don't think we're like Sardis, by God's grace. I've seen many signs of genuine faith and love and deeds and service over the last few years. But only the Lord knows the heart. Only the Lord knows what is really going on. So this church in Sardis is a warning to us. It's a warning when we want to put our names above Jesus' name. It's a warning when we want to conform to the culture around us. But only the Lord Jesus knows our hearts. And so if there's any grain of truth in, in what Jesus is saying of us, we need to take it very seriously. When we hear a passage like this one, we can often let it glaze over us, thinking it doesn't apply to us. But Jesus is speaking to those confident in their own reputation. So let us put aside putting, uh, building a name for ourselves, living for our own reputation, and let's put the name of the Lord Jesus as the front of our priorities and live the name above all other names. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're sorry for all the ways we build a name for ourselves and have coated on our reputation instead of exalting the name of the Lord Jesus. So Father, please wake us up to where we need to repent. Help us to see the wonders of the Lord Jesus afresh again and all that you have done for us in him. We praise you that you can raise the dead. We pray that you would raise us to newness of life in Christ and help us to heed Jesus' words here for the glory of your name. Amen.